0: Okay, let's go into Dr. Weinstein's case. This is a 45-year-old, never-smoking woman, very active, working as a waitress in a local hotel, mother, wife, seemingly perfectly good health, who developed a left supraclavicular lymph node that was suspicious to her primary care doctor for a lymphoma. So he arranged for this to be biopsied, and lo and behold, an adenocarcinoma was discovered. She went on to... Imaging with a cat and a pet in which there was a hyper avid lesion measuring 3.4 by 3.4 by 3.4 centimeters in the left upper lobe associated with bilateral mediastinal lymph nodes. All other imaging tests were negative. So she comes to me and I start treating her with carboplatin, taxol, and avastin for six cycles. And at the end of the sixth cycle, She has no further palpable nodes, and her PET CT scan shows minimal left upper lobe abnormality, but it is now PET cold. When you said he had bilateral nodes, was that PET only, or were they CT large nodes? No, they were very small, and they were initially both seen on CT and PET avid. So, Mark, how would
1: you think through what to do at this point? Well, let's go back to the beginning. 45-year-old never-smoking female. Pops up with a node, so she's 3B in the left supraclavicular space. Caucasian, by the way. Yeah, okay. Has a left upper lobe mass, mediastinal adenopathy, and gets carbotaxivastin. Presumably, she didn't have any of the other contraindicated things like hemoptysis or prolonged no. INR and all she that because she was perfect. Totally asymptomatic, except for this nodal mass. I think there are several things that are running through my mind. One is. Is there a role for combined modality in this 3B patient? Most combined modality trials that have been done have typically excluded patients with palpable supraclavicular adenopathy. However, some of them don't. So we have to be aware of that because this lady, in my opinion, is kind of right on the cusp of kind of thinking is she potentially curable with combined modality therapy, or is the horse out of the bark? Should we manage it more like a stage four with this superclav node? So that runs through my mind. Now, typically what we have done is exactly what you have done, and that's give systemic therapy. Occasionally, our radiation oncologists make a case for reassessing after induction chemo, if you will, because I think that historically the reason that we excluded patients with palpable supraclav nodes years ago was with two-dimensional radiation therapy, the ports were so big that the toxicity was unacceptable. That's different now with 3D planning and tumor targeting and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's something you that should cross your mind. Now, the selection of therapy, I think the controversy in these patients are in a never smoker with adenocarcinoma In a female, what's the role of EGFR-directed therapy in the first-line setting? At our place, assuming we were going to treat her systemically, we would have put her on the CLGB Never Smoker trial. That trial, it's randomized. The eligibility criteria are that you have to be a never smoker or a light smoker, and light smoker is defined as less than 10 pack years, and you quit more than a year ago. You have to have tissue, a block of tissue, which she's had a lymph node biopsy, so she has paraffin-embedded tissue, and patients on that trial are randomized to single-agent erlotinib versus carbotaxol with erlotinib. So I think that's what we would have done at our institution. I think the controversy is is that we also know that there is a role for Avastin in this population of patients that fits the eligibility criteria. Is a VEGF approach in these never-smoking female adenocarcinoma patients better than a EGFR approach? It's not been addressed in trials. The one thing that ECOG showed us at ASCO this year is that Raise the issue of, is there survival benefit in women with bevacizumab from the ECOG trial? I think that that's a spurious result. I think females clearly had higher response rates, longer time to progression, and in general overall did better. So I don't think this was certainly a bad choice for this patient. Yeah, let's go bit to right now. Right now. You've got a very good response. I personally would revisit the radiotherapy question. And I personally would talk with her about going on Erlotinib at this point as a never smoker, as kind of a maintenance thing.
2: Marty? When you were first mentioning this, the idea of combined modality therapy was running through my mind. And there's study... Actually, it was a trimodality approach. SWAG 8805 would have included some of these patients because they actually analyzed them. And to one's astonishment, I mean, the SC supravacular node patients did remarkably well. Again, this lady is truly on the cusp, and I think, given this outstanding response, I would certainly look at that issue of potentially radiotherapy. The other thing that crosses my mind is, in my experience, this group of patients frequently ends up with CNS metastases. So I'd probably want to look in her head at this point point because that's just been one of those things that's been real common the issue of EGFR therapy i think is one of those great unknowables and really, really tough to make a recommendation. There's always this tremendous desire to do something, and we certainly have evidence that these EGFR-mutated individuals, if in fact she has that, do extraordinarily well. However, it's also the fact that this is a prognostic indicator as well. People with EGFR mutation also do well even when they get chemotherapy. And this lady, let's say she has an EGFR mutation, has certainly done as well, I mean, as anything else out there with the treatment. Sounds like she tolerated it well. So it's a good overall prognostic factor regardless of therapy. It's a predictive factor. Again, somebody who hasn't been treated for response to an EGFR inhibitor, it's not clear yet that there's a survival advantage for that over doing other things. I mean, yes, certainly people did very well on this PASRS trial. However, there's no randomization in that. We don't know how they would have done with chemotherapy. We don't know about sequential issues yet. I think you could make an argument based upon what do we know about the use of erlotinib or jefitinib following chemotherapy in a patient with locally advanced treatment who has done well, who's gotten a great response or metastatic disease. Well, we actually have two conflicting pieces of evidence here, and you can take what you want out of this. It can fulfill your deepest biases. One of them is in stage four disease where we have the subgroup analysis from one of the randomized trials where chemotherapy and erlotinib were given concurrently and then the erlotinib was followed as a maintenance And those patients who stayed on the maintenance TKI seem to do better, and particularly if they were the never smokers. And so that's one way of looking at that, that this was important and should be used sequentially. The other sequential data comes from the SWOG trial in stage 3B disease. So she's 3B, though I don't think would have fit into that particular trial, where in fact the use of gefitinib certainly was no better and may have actually been harmful. So I think you could be justified to do almost anything in this at this point. As far as using it as maintenance, yeah, you have some data to support that. Arguing against that and giving the lady a drug holiday, I think, is very reasonable. And then you know, if you watch this patient closely, you have what it will probably be an effective therapy. And she will have gotten some time off all treatment, potentially. And as I said, my other caution is I get very worried about these people in CNS metastases.
3: Let's follow up with the case. So I did none of that. (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh, in radiation, we also mentioned that as well. Okay. So, I
0: didn't
3: do that either.
2: Okay. So
0: based on the 4599, I continued her on Avastin, which she remained on until April of this year when her imaging starts to show that the left upper lobe lesion becomes pet hot again, but no other abnormalities are evident. I stopped the Avastin, and I contemplate either surgery or radiation therapy. So she goes to see our surgeon— And ultimately comes to a left upper lobectomy, at which time a 5.3 centimeter adenocarcinoma is removed with all negative lymph nodes. And at this point, with restaging, head and everywhere else, she's clinically NED. Did you put her back on the Avastin? No, I did not. But I don't know what to do because she is just about two months
3: after the completion of her surgery. So I couldn't put her on Avastin yet anyway one point prior to finding out from the two of you what you would do now, this patient comes to you for a second opinion. Just as we talked a little bit about you know, some of the key issues. I want to try to get opinions from all four of you about how you approach this question of once you're finished the chemo, do you continue the Avastin maintenance until relapses, which is what is done in the trials. But there was some question this morning about clinical practice. Mark, in a non-protocol setting, how are you approaching that
1: question? I have to admit I stop. I think that The major impact of treatment occurs in the first three or four cycles in this disease. It demonstrates to me that not only this, but in other solid tumors, bevacizumab therapy augments the efficacy of chemotherapy in that setting. And I'm not quite sure about what benefit in how you balance the potential cumulative toxicity, the inconvenience, the cost beyond the time that you stop chemotherapy. So I think it's an interesting research question about do you stop or do you continue? And I'm aware that the ECOG continued in that, but I'm just not ready to buy into that concept of very prolonged avastin use.
2: Marty, in what are you doing right setting.
1: now in a non-protocol setting?
2: I'm continuing. I mean I've been very conservative both ways in how I use Avastin. And I think it's just in general my basic approach to a lot of things, which is we have a trial, it's markedly positive in a selected population, and what I try to do is basically follow what was done on that in a suitable patient, and I continue until the time of progression. But I completely agree with Mark. I mean we really don't know that this is the right thing to do. However, it is what was done in the trial. I would love to see, and I think a discontinuation design where one group in the adjuvant study would be perfect to solve this question, where after your one year, certain people might continue on and other ones stop. So you get some idea is in fact there a use for this continuation of drug. I'm not convinced that there is, but I try to follow what was actually done.
1: So, Mark, this patient comes to you for a second opinion about what to do now. What would you say? I think that lung cancer has become very interesting. These patients are patients we typically don't see very often. I think that from the start, of this patient had regionally localized disease, although kind of right on the cusp between relying on systemic therapy and aggressive local regional therapy. We have had some cases like this where in a younger patient, you stage them as best you can. Seems like her greatest bulk of disease was in the left upper lobe. That had a therapeutic effect of treatment, but did not sterilize the cancer there. And if you are convinced, and I assume the pet was negative every place else, her head was imaged, that's what you got. I think short of doing either radiation or surgery, you're not gonna sterilize the left upper lobe with more systemic therapy. So I think this is a reasonable approach, particularly in a forty-five year old never smoker who has otherwise no other comorbidities or no other issues. And what would you do right now? Right now, if she were node negative and she had just the left upper lobe stuff, I probably would not do anything right now. I do agree with Marty, what I didn't get a chance to say before is that although I think EGFR therapy would be helpful to this patient you can argue about the timing do you do it now or do you follow her closely and at the first inkling of new disease treat her at that point as kind of a second line approach i think that's perfectly reasonable
3: same question to marty what do you think about the surgery
1: and what would you do now
2: Well, it's like I always say, there's no arguing with success, but I think it's important also to recognize that, particularly among some of the cases that are being presented, the first case, the stage 1B, this was a classic patient, etc. This is clearly an unusual natural history here. This is kind of an oddling type of patient, and I wouldn't necessarily draw many conclusions in future patients from this one, but what the patient's showing us is what the patient's showing us, and we all have these strange outlier individuals, but I completely agree with Mark. I think at this point I would, probably leave well enough alone. This lady is extremely likely to have a relapse. Hopefully she won't, but Maybe she'll be the one of the lucky few percent. And the fact that something bad may happen or is likely to happen does not necessarily say that we have a useful intervention to prevent that. And I think we have to always guard against this desire to do something because we know that likely something bad is going to happen and then inflict upon a patient toxicity and expense, which may not do anything to change this.
3: Any questions? Okay. I just have one quick question for you. The tissue... Tumor is on the table now, wouldn't
0: you want to check for EGFR? Well, of course. <laughs> sure. And once you check it and it comes like positive, what would you do? I would do nothing. So why check it? Because I want to be able to have that in my armamentarium in the future. Because I agree, I think that she's likely to relapse. So, of course, you could say, well, check it in the future. And I say, yes, 99% of the time you could do that successfully. But there's always the rare time when the
3: block gets lost and there's no available tissue again so I would do it now this is breast cancer you get an ER HER2 and they're getting the tumor taken out yet. routinely yeah. you don't want to start thinking about it when the patient comes in with visceral crisis or whatever Right. quick question for Dr. Taylor at some
0: point a question that's come up on the last one and this one role of PET CT in metastatic disease yeah,
2: I don't. I'll be yeah. very simple. I don't see a value to it. And I don't Over CT why. alone? Over y- CT yeah, alone. Yeah. I think CT, if they're not shrinking, how do I continue? I mean, I basically practice as closely as I can to like what I would do on a study. And I follow CT scans and the clinical behavior of the patient in a CT scan. Right. If this patient had lesions that were enlarging on the CT scan... So what if the PET changes? That's not going to change it. If there are new areas on the CT scan, who cares what the PET shows? If they're getting smaller on the CT scan and the patient feels well... I don't care what the pet shows. What's the pet going to add to this? I think that the pet is very valuable when you're considering surgery and you're looking for something outside the chest. I think there may be some emerging role with this as far as predicting response early, perhaps, but we don't know that yet. So I would not have repeated the pet. I think it's an expensive test. I think it's now overutilized. The other area, though, let me point out one other thing is, if I have a patient with potentially solitary metastatic disease, particularly in the brain, where I'm looking to definitively treat that patient and possibly cure them, because there are the occasional stage four curable patients, then I want that PET-CT because I'm hunting for every other area of disease because I'm looking to do something very aggressive to someone And I'm looking for reasons not to do that, but if it's all negative. So that's how I use PET-CT.
3: It's interesting, just reflecting back on this whole day here, how much of what we talked about today in terms of direct clinical patient management, we would have been talking about three years ago, like three years ago. Like I think 90%
1: of what we talked about has been in the last three years. So for years, the fellows, Mark Taylor was one of them, wondered why I did lung cancer. as <laughs> my only disease. And I kept telling them that, you know, lung cancer really is interesting. And it's really only been validated over the past three years or so. But I thought it was interesting years ago, too. But I think, Neil, you're right. And from the patient's point of view, I think there's been great benefit in now we're talking about Dr. Ang's got a case in the fifth line setting that has this great response. I mean, we just didn't have that opportunity three years ago. And so I think this is very good for generating enthusiasm about pushing forward with defining what the right clinical trials are and getting more information about newer agents.
3: Marty, what are we going to be talking about three years from now that we're not talking about today in terms of things that are directly relevant to patient care?
2: Well, I think that, to me, some of the most interesting things from ASCO is really not just looking endlessly at the EGFR issue. I mean, clearly, this is an important class of drugs, and clearly, it's a large population. I mean, as we've pointed out, a small subgroup in lung cancer is a huge group of people's whole other diseases. So the EGFR-positive people are probably 15,000 patients, far more than there are Hodgkin's patients in the country each year. But I think that we still need to go back and look at our backbone drugs, the platinums, the taxanes, gemcitabine, etc. These are drugs that clearly work, but we know that they don't work in everybody. But you know what? I think that there are markers in those drugs that will turn those into the 80-90% drugs, and that's what we saw at ASCO this year, ERCC-1, RM-1, from Jerry Bepler's group. The fact, and I think what we're going to see is that our therapy in the future will not be driven by necessarily the EGFR mutation, but by a panel of maybe a dozen different markers with the drugs without anything necessarily that's new, but that will really let us tailor these therapies towards a specific patient. So we will know, are they likely to respond? Or perhaps the other side of this, are they not likely to respond, like what RAS mutation will show us? So I think we really are entering that era. We're going to need to do those studies. Those studies will require tissue. You know, we've had this argument with the IRBs over the years, you know, oh, you're going to get another piece of tissue. I sat in on this morning's thing, And I think Tom Lynch had a great point. You know, you can figure out a safe way to get it a mediastinal mass in a lymphoma patients. Well, you know what? It's time to figure a safe way to do it in lung cancer patients. I mean, I had the privilege of chairing a trial in CLGB. We required tissue. And this was fascinating. It was CLGB 30203. We looked at icosinoid modulators, and we required tissue. And early on, I was nervous. You know, I was, uh, I was allowed to give an exemption for this. And we did it for a few patients at the very beginning because we were just anxious about accrual. What turned out was we had no problems with accrual. We got plenty of specimens. And what was fascinating about this study was we showed that COX 2 overexpression, we confirmed what everybody knew, was a bad prognostic factor. But if you had it, you got celecoxib, you did really well. And that's a remarkable thing. And I think it turned what was otherwise a negative study into a provocative study that may generate another, will certainly at least generate another randomized phase two, possibly a phase three study. And I think this is what we need to do. There are all of those drugs that we've thrown on the wayside, the MMPs, PKC-alpha antagonists, et cetera. But if we had had the tissue, we would have known a little bit more about it. We had four negative randomized trials with Tarceva and orissa But we had a little bit of a hint of activity. I think we've had hints with other drugs. We need to identify better these things. And so in the future, our trials really need to mandate that we have tissue. I think that's one of the things that's going to change. I think we will have better markers for the drugs that we have. I'm a proponent of the fact we need better drugs to replace our antitubulants. There are better anti-tubulins out there. There are potentially better platinums out there. We'll have better use of that. I think that that cytotoxic backbone will remain important, but perhaps with different names and a more accurate use.
3: And Mark, talking about things changing quickly, Atif was on a similar panel discussion we had at ASCO on renal cell cancer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we spent five hours talking about renal cell. And again, most of that stuff came out in the last couple of years. One of the issues there, and I'm curious in terms of lung cancer, is sunitinib, serafinib, and also ZD6474, Zactima. Can you talk a little bit about those agents in non-small cell?
1: Yeah. First of all, I want to say I agree with Marty. What I was thinking about as this discussion ongoing is the fact that one of the paradigms we've established in lung is the paradigm of anti-angiogenic therapy with the whole bevacizumab thing. And so that opens up a number of questions. And some of those questions relate to the TKIs of VEGF. At ASCO, we had a special session on angiogenesis in lung cancer in single-agent data with Zactima or 6474, Sinitinib and Serafinib were presented. And the take-home message that I got from that particular session was that these VEGF TKIs have a level of activity that looks, at least to me, very similar to what we initially saw with ERISA and Tarsiva in the initial phase two trials in refractory groups of patients. 10% response rates, very typical time to progression and overall survival rates. It establishes, in my mind, kind of a beachhead for these TKIs. And so, although I think that a few of us have used Sutent outside of a clinical trial in lung cancer patients, We know from the data that I presented that it has a 10% response rate and a 40% disease stabilization rate. There's some utility there. This gets back to maybe in the six line setting, who knows, we're going to be offering Sutent to some patients and it may benefit patients. So I think the real issue is how to take these VEGF TKIs like Sutent that are out there and integrate them with other chemotherapeutic approaches. I agree with everything Marty said. I think that we will be thinking three years from now about our cytotoxic choices in relation to the molecular profile of the patient's tumor and those sorts of things. But we've got some questions and the opportunity to look at the TKIs. There may be some advantages. One of the things that we talked about before is how long do you continue Avastin? Well, it's a little inconvenient to continue an IV drug, maybe an oral drug like sutant would be perfect. In fact, this is an idea that we have in CLGB is to look at a, for lack of a better term, maintenance trial, four cycles of chemo with or without sutant afterwards to look to see if that would prolong the time to progression and those sorts of things. So I think that there are a number of questions that are going to be important. What about these agents and pulmonary hemorrhage it's a risk. It's not only these agents, but we know in first find that with bevazuzumab. I think that there clearly is a class effect, if you will. How to define patients who are at high risk for those sorts of things. I mean, the current thinking is that it's histology, squamous cell. It may have to do with baseline cavitation. I'm not necessarily convinced that it might not be location. Marty pointed out that we haven't seen it in small cell but small cell is submucosal disease. I'm not convinced that endobronchial disease, which we typically see in squamous cell and adenos, is necessarily the same or small. Or we can look at a small cell trial and see, geez, there was no hemorrhage, therefore, it's not location because most small cells are central. It's more histology. I'm not yet convinced about those sorts of things. So I think there certainly is a word of caution for the high-risk patient, known squamous cell, known baseline cavitation, hemopticizing at the time, those are patients that I clearly would stay away from. And then there are patients who are not that. I think the problem is there's a whole bunch of gray in the middle about how safe these drugs are. I think, like with bevacizumab, we will learn more about what the risk factors are. We are now venturing in clinical trials into the populations of patients That were excluded from 4599, like the squamous cell population, to define the safety in that population and how to reduce the risk of that happening. We'll do the same thing with the TKIs.
3: Can you talk a little bit more about 6474? It's kind of interesting. It has two mechanisms there.
1: I refer to 6474 as the schizophrenic drug, mainly because in a single molecule, we are provided with, at face value, EGFR inhibition and VEGF inhibition. Now, it's a more potent VEGF inhibitor than it is an EGFR inhibitor, and at the doses that I believe are moving forward in clinical trials, I think most people believe that it's acting more like a VEGF inhibitor than it is a VEGF plus EGFR inhibitor. Certainly at the doses that are being used, perhaps it would inhibit a EGFR mutation patient, which are sensitive to very low levels, but I think there's some question about The impact it might have on wild-type EGFR. So that seems to be an advantage because the two pathways that have been validated over the past three years in lung cancer have been the EGFR pathway and the VEGF pathway. So this kind of approach is interesting. On the other hand, I'm not so sure that, as we've shown certainly in unselected patients, that when you're giving chemotherapy that EGFR inhibition is a good idea at least in unselected patients. So there are some drawbacks to these sorts of molecules that have these dual inhibitory capabilities.
3: This concludes our program. Special thanks to our speakers and our community oncologists, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Meet the Professors.